I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 15 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Practicing the way of Jesus is more than a life of anti-sin, but not less than that. Just as the old ways are put to death, the new ways must be taken up in this alternative society we call the church. This is Alistair Crowley. In 1904, Mr. Crowley took a trip to Cairo, Egypt, where he claimed to have been visited by a supernatural entity. This being was said to provide Crowley with something that he called the Book of the Law, which became the basis for a religion that he had invented called Thelema. For Crowley, Thelema was this mystic spirituality that could perhaps best be described In his famous quote, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Now this is Anton LaVey. He carried on and adapted Crowley's philosophy in the 1969 book, The Satanic Bible. People think of The Satanic Bible as this horrifying ancient tome of dark magic, but really it's just a collection of essays by a guy with a sinister looking goatee that was published in, by HarperCollins in the late 60s. For Anton LaVey, do what thou wilt, elevated the individual to the authoritative seat of God, and consequently, humanity had no need of higher power, and they could act as their own gods. Now, fast forward to 2015 and the release of Dave Eggers' film, The Witch. Eggers' movie was, I thought, it was a great little art house horror flick in the tradition of movies like The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby. But The Witch made ridiculous headlines because of someone called Jex Blackmore. Yes, Jex Blackmore. She leads the Detroit chapter of the Satanic Temple. She loved The Witch, calling it, quote, a transformative satanic experience that is a call to arms and it becomes an act of spiritual sabotage and liberation from the oppressive traditions of our forefathers. Now, me personally, I thought this was a hilariously bad interpretation of the movie. If you think that the witch intends to celebrate the events events depicted in the film, methinks you need another pass at Film Interpretation 101, or just a decent dose of common sense. And at any rate, Dave Eggers, the film's writer and director, also stated that he had no such ideological statement in mind when he made The Witch. Now, what's up with these guys? What's up with Aleister Crowley and Anton LaVey and the Jex Blackmores of the world? Is freedom really getting to do whatever the heck you want? Is that really what's best? Does getting to do whatever you want inevitably lead to silly hats and devil goatees and fake names like Jex Blackmore or worse? And is life by a code, a life of disciplined self-denial, oppression, as it is often said so today? Because the way of Jesus has always been accused of moral oppression. And honestly, when the ugly pseudo-Christian civil religion of American evangelicalism has attempted to dominate and legislate and impose its moralism on a world beyond the church, that accusation is pretty fitting and pretty fair. But throughout the centuries, the way of Jesus has also been accused of oppression because it claims that some things are true and other things are false, that some things are good and other things are evil. Disciples of Jesus used that framework of truth versus lies, good versus evil, as a code by which they navigate life in the world. And there has always been people who don't like this. But everyone lives by a code. Aleister Crowley, Anton LaVey, Jex Blackmore, they may love a catchphrase like, do what thou wilt. 
But when they go on to insist, hey, your way of thinking and living is wrong, it should be more like mine, which is what they do, then that is no longer do what thou wilt. That's do what I wilt. This is unique to no worldview, religious or otherwise. But it does beg the question, what is best? Would we all be better off doing whatever the heck we want all the time? Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Or did Jesus know what the heck he was talking about? Was and is Jesus trustworthy? Open your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. If you're joining us for the first time, we're spending our summer unpacking one first century letter by a man called Paul, who had previously dedicated his life to ending the way of Jesus, only to invert his purpose and give everything he had to advancing the way of Jesus. One man called Epaphras, with whom Paul had shared the story of Jesus, he had come to faith. Epaphras went to a city called Colossae, and he started a church there. Things were going really well, but eventually complications set in like they always do. So Paul, though he had never himself been to the church in Colossae, he realized that he was kind of the spokesperson for the Jesus movement in that area. He sent a letter to this little church that was facing cultural pressure to abandon the way of Jesus for the first time. Now thus far, the emphasis of the letter has been Paul pleading with the Christians in Colossae to continue to set their minds and their hearts and all their thinking and living and feeling at all times and in all things on the teachings of Jesus and on the Spirit of God. And then, he assures them, if you do that, you will not be so easily led astray. Last week, we read as Paul began this game of compare and contrast. He reminded his readers that life outside the church in the Roman world of the first century, it's crazy. It's not like Jesus at all. And once you indulged in these things, he writes to the, the Christians in Colossae, specifically the Gentiles who were not raised in Judaism. They had no paradigm for the Torah or the law or Yahweh. So once, just recently, they were living crazy. They indulged these things that are no longer part of their lives, and they have to take on a different way of life. And he listed some of those anti-Jesus modes of thinking and living that these Christians had left behind. Now, this week... We're going to get into the contrast, how life with Jesus is different. Not just what we don't do, but what we do. Now, would you guys please stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the Scriptures? You can leave that one up there, Garrett. I think I'm one ahead of you, but you'll figure it out. You're my part. Yep, he gave me the thumbs up. Let's read from Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ the Messiah is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of King Jesus rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, who doesn't like this kind of stuff? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. Now, last week, if you were here, it was the list of sins, the old way of life that must be taken off like an old set of clothes. That's divisive stuff. But this, what's not to like? In his commentary on this passage, scholar Scott McKnight writes, the apostles' ethics cannot be reduced to commands and prohibitions because they flow from the gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul moves into the implications of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is, the Christians in Colossae have died to their old way of life. They should put off sins, and if they have been raised, they should put on love as the new way to conduct the ecclesial or church life. Practicing the way of Jesus together is not just about the negative, don't do this. It's not just about the positive, do this. Paul likens it to peeling away old garments and being dressed in something new. Step one, step two. It's an active way of life, positive, that deliberately rejects the status quo, negative. I often hear this mantra, be known for what you're for, not for what you're against. And there's a grain of truth in there, but in Paul's mind, one logically flows from and requires the other. Sure, it's, very, it's a very bad look, we all know, to be constantly on about everything that's bad and wrong and evil, paranoid about it, shouting it to the rooftops, all angry and mean-spirited. And let's be honest, evangelicalism has done plenty of that. But being for something always means being against some other thing. Think of it in terms of some other divisive lifestyle decision. This is an easy one uh, for me to use, divisive lifestyle decision. My family's vegan. To even say such a thing for whatever reason can make certain hackles rise. So people ask, why? And we might answer, well, personally, we are for positive compassion and stewardship of God's creation for the humane and ethical treatment of animals. That's the positive aspect of why. But anybody knows about the thing in culture, veganism is known for better or for worse, more for its restrictions than its values. Vegans only eat stuff made out of plants. So my family is for all that stuff, creation, care, humane, ethical treatment of animals, blah, blah, blah. Thus, we are personally against purchasing or consuming products made from animals in the complicated modern world of factory farms and environmental degradation, the dark alleys of the industry, all that stuff, negative. One logically flows from and requires the other. A value without an action is only half the equation. So sure, it is always divisive to be anti, especially if it calls certain assumptions into question, but the action is propelled by both the for and the against, the positive and the negative. So here's the baseline, the foundation, the starting point. Look again at chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now this is, you have to understand this if you're going to understand anything that comes after it. 
This is fundamentally who you are if you follow Jesus. Paul has been getting at this point all throughout his letter. God wanted you. God chose you. Before you did anything, before you had a chance to respond to God at all, when you were oblivious to, alienated from God, he loved you, chose you, rescued you, and made you unique. He set you apart to be a part of something unique and special. Now, if one actually believes that, actually fundamentally believes that to be true about themselves, well, then that changes everything. And here's the active response. Keep reading verse 12. Clothe yourselves. Again, this is Paul's metaphor for taking off an old way of life and putting on a new way of life. Following Jesus is not just a belief system. Being saved, as we sometimes describe it, is not a static state of being, as in you're not saved or you are saved. It is an active way of life. Clothe yourselves with what? The list begins with compassion. Now, here's something weird for you. What my Bible translates as compassion comes from two Greek words. One is splonknon, which is a fun thing to say, and the other is oktirmos, which literally means bowels of mercy. So if you were looking for a, a name for your Christian metal band, there it is. In the ancient world, uh, the bowels were used the same way that you, we in the modern English-speaking word use the term heart. It's kind of like a reference to something in the body, but more so it means the deep, primal, emotional center of a person. We say heart, they said bowels. I think theirs is cooler, but what are you going to do? It's much more than our English word compassion captures because it means a profound expression of mercy and love that alleviates the deep-seated need to express them. Now, forgive me for sounding crass. I didn't make this up. But it's akin to like intense abdominal pressure to relieve the bowels. Paul is saying the overwhelming goodness of God, the near unfathomable love and mercy he has showered on us can, if we let it, produce in us a felt need to do likewise. It's not that just we, we have to do it. It's a rule for us to follow. We've been given such graciousness that we feel like we have to express the same thing. So here's an analogy. Every time my family hosts our Van City community on Tuesday nights, once you know a month in the rotation or whatever it is, Hannah, who is in our community, washes the dishes at the end of night. I've never asked her to do this, and I've discouraged her from doing it once or twice, but she doesn't listen. She just quietly washes the dishes at the end of the night. Last week, Cam and Hannah hosted our community night, and I was packing up my kids' stuff, you know, one last pass, putting it all in a bag the food that we brought, the toys that they'd, you know, strewn out everywhere. And as I passed, I saw a sink and a countertop and a table littered with dishes and food. And I thought to myself, well, Hannah always washes my dishes, so I should probably wash hers. So I washed hers. Now, the point is not to toot my own horn. I've done this once. She's done it dozens of times. But to point out the fact that, to my discredit, I hadn't really even thought to do the dishes before then. But Hannah's consistent gesture of quiet, selfless kindness replicated itself. I didn't feel obligated to do it. I doubt anyone would have been mad at me if I didn't wash the dishes. But kindness created a felt need for more kindness. This is like that, but at a profound existential soul level. God loved you and chose you and saved you. And when that reality takes deep root in your life, we tend to respond with more mercy more compassion, more kindness. Now use that to frame the rest of verse 12. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Think about these qualities. Humility, gentleness, patience. 
the way that Paul chooses to have them conclude this little list. This new way of life, in other words, is not an aggressive, domineering takeover campaign. Americans love to reward the type A, go-getter, steamrolling leaders who take life by the neck and throttle it, but the scriptures consistently value gentleness and compassion and humility. Remember that. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul writes, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, that does not mean that disciples of Jesus are to be weak and flimsy pushovers with nary and intense thought or emotion in their soft, gentle little heads, but it does make you wonder. Think of the public face of evangelicalism as represented by alleged Christian you know, right-wing journalists or Facebook users or counter-protesters. Do you associate these stereotypes with humility ever? Does anyone? Do you ever read these things or see these things and think of patience and kindness Is their gentleness evident to all? More on this in just a little bit. For now, note that Paul wants the Christians in Colossae to be so humbled by God's grace, by the unbelievability of what God did for them when he shouldn't have done anything, to be so deeply grateful for it that they will no longer have any use for social barriers or class or status or race, that they have all been equalized before God so that the rich will become like the poor, that those of high status will be like those with low status, all of them family across all kinds of ethnic and national barriers. They will come together humbled and made compassionate by the equalizing love of God. Next, Paul writes in verse 13, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone... Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do you see how the you in Paul's writing is consistently plural? Though Paul's theology absolutely has personal implications, Paul writes to churches, not to individuals. Again, from McKnight, love itself is a covenantal commitment to one another of presence and advocacy in the journey into Christoformity or becoming like Jesus, which means that the Colossians will be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient with one another. Meaning, you can't actually practice any of this, live this out, obey any of this all by yourself. You can't do this unless you belong to the community of the church. Following Jesus is always and only carried out in the accountability of community, the vulnerability of sharing your life, opening up the journey of your discipleship to other people for the purpose of encouragement and accountability. And look at his language. He immediately goes, oh, be kind, compassionate, and then immediately moves into bear with one another, forgive one another. Paul assumes that inevitably it is going to be messy. He doesn't even bother qualifying any of this with contingencies. He doesn't say, hey, listen, if someone drops the ball in that event, forgive them. He just assumes that the church will require lots and lots of forgiveness. Forgiveness, C.S. Lewis famously argued, is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. But without it, people leave churches, and they break relationships, and communities fall apart. And Paul knows this full well, but he's reminding them, listen, as difficult as forgiveness is going to be, remember, God forgave and forgives you. So if you're looking for inspiration, look no further. 
Do what God does for you every single day. And now Paul continues to spell it out in verse 15. Let the peace of the Messiah rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of the Messiah dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I love that line, teach and admonish one another, which is another way of saying correct one another, hold one another accountable, not find your own truth, not do what makes you happy, rather help one another walk in the ways of truth by admonishing one another, a word that means rebuke one another. But look at how, with wisdom and psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. There is a beautiful graciousness to the rebuke of accountability when it is done correctly according to the way of Jesus. It becomes, in essence, an act of worship, no different than the singing we do on Sunday nights or the listening prayer that we do in communities throughout the week. All of it woven together in the family of God, accountability as routine and lovely as worship and communion. And I can vouch for this, honestly, as someone who has been rebuked, believe it or not, without wisdom and kindness. I know what that's like. It's no fun, by the way. It's painful. It does more damage than good. And I have been rebuked with gracious love, with genuine concern for the other person, for my well-being, for my maturity and my growth as a disciple of Jesus. And I can tell you that it can be a beautiful, albeit painful, thing. And I am grateful to God and to the brave brothers and sisters who have rebuked me over the years, who have loved me enough to say, hey, listen, this thing that you're doing is not consistent with what you believe about Jesus, and you need to repent. And it's not just admonishing or rebuking one another. We teach one another as well, not just correcting sin, but learning goodness from one another, not just from the person on stage on Sunday night, but all of us from the other. Remember that for later. Through it all, the peace of Jesus is your guiding principle. It is to reign in your hearts. One scholar paraphrases, in making your decisions, in choosing between alternatives and settling conflicts of will, a concern to preserve the inward and communal peace that Christ gave and gives should be your controlling principle. Not letting other people know when they're wrong, not letting other people know when you're right, but the peace and unity that comes from the gracious love of Jesus. And then, finally, you get the summation statement core to all Christian doctrine in verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, your vocation, your career, your job, your relationships, the way that you talk to your friends, who you spend time with and why, how you raise your kids, how you spend your money, where you shop, what you buy, what you eat and watch and listen to, how you order your day, your habits, your dreams, your big fat plans, your lack of plans, in and over and through all of it, it must be done so that it can be said with integrity that these actions and decisions are being carried out in such a way that Jesus' call over your life is being prioritized above all, honored, and upheld. No one does this perfectly. We are in journey together to make that the truth, and we need one another to make that the truth. Now, that doesn't mean 
that when you appropriately realize this vision, you'll quit your job and become a missionary, or that every single conversation you ever have will, will be about the Bible or evangelizing someone. It just means that in everything, you are learning to bring all of life into alignment with God. You are learning to live all of life out of gratitude for God's good love. Remember that brief flicker I described during which it occurred to me that it might be good to wash Hannah's dishes. I was walking by, I remembered what she'd done for me, and all of a sudden something you know, sparked in my mind, oh, I should do this as well. We are learning to make that our innate disposition in all things, so that through everything, every single minute of the day, we're constantly grateful to God and acting out of, in response to, that gratitude. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it takes a while. Spiritual formation takes a long time, and we won't get there quickly or easily, but that's why we have each other. You cannot do it by yourself or in isolation or without community, and that's where we'll land. To end tonight, Paul's game of compare and contrast is important because it reminds us that Christian life is not a hippie commune of Ned Flanders clones nor is it a squadron of angry, domineering evangelicals hell-bent on global domination. It's true that Paul describes the new way of life with terms like peace and kindness and gentleness, but in all, he is creating a portrait of a community that is anything but timid or permissive. N.T. Wright argues this, Paul is not describing in this section a bunch of weak-willed, wimpish people. Have you ever seriously tried to forgive someone who wronged you? Have you ever seriously tried to be compassionate and patient? Have you ever tried to let Christ's peace, Christ's word, Christ's name be the reality around which you order your life? If you have, you'll know it's not easy. In Paul's mind, gentleness requires bravery and strength. Going on about peace and love means nothing without the contrast. How costly it is to embody this kind of thing. Putting on the new outfit is worthless if the old outfit goes moldering underneath. You keep on the old way of life and try to patch on the new one on top. You've given up the old way of things. It's time to learn the new way of things. The positive, love one another, is meaningless if we fail to understand and to embody that this love is more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It stands against sin and evil and death. The famously anti-Christian social media progressivism of our time and place understands this while somehow denying it to be true, meaning the whole Twitter progressivism sham parades itself as this bastion of tolerance and acceptance of all ideas and worldviews, and then it arranges itself as this militant war horse on a mission to silence and deconstruct and demolish any and every idea that remotely contradicts the progressive herd mentality. And frankly, I think it makes sense. I say, embrace it. At least that would be consistent. Change the little, you know, business placards on the glass door that says all religions are welcome and add on, you know, the little asterisk that says except the ones we don't like. At least be honest. And if you'll let me paint a generalized picture for a minute, let's be honest about how the church has attempted to embrace one thing at the expense of the other. I was raised, for example, in a church that was very good at confronting anything that it believed was sin, whether it was or wasn't. But when it came to stewarding kindness and gentleness and humility, not so much. 
On the other hand, for churches like ours, full of young people in an extremely progressive time and place, the temptation is to run full tilt toward the other pole, to somehow attempt this fretful, hand-wringing work of being super gentle and tolerant and accepting of everything, terrified of confronting anything that the Bible might describe as bum, 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 sin. Again, N.T. Wright argues, equally, a church where everyone is very caring and supportive but where immorality flourishes unchecked because people are afraid to confront it in case they're told that they are being unloving, is allowing noxious weeds to grow, to ground, or grow all around flowers in the garden. You can't select some parts of the picture and leave others. For any of the parts to make sense, they all need to be in one place. Now notice, again, that all of this is said to the church not to you, individual disciple of Jesus with your own personal, private spirituality, but to the community. Behind all this, the backdrop of the entire text, the presupposition of it all, is that disciples of Jesus will belong to the church, that they will come together week in and week out, take communion, study the scriptures, worship, pray, share life. Again, the focus throughout the letter has been the faithfulness to the community of God or to the church. Don't believe me? Scott McKnight argues, however this text is explained, the focus is on an ecclesial or church-centered life over against a strictly individualistic life. Love is a rugged covenantal commitment to another person to be with that one and for that one as both journey into Christ-likeness. Another New Testament theologian put it this way. I love this. Nothing is as unbiblical as the so-called self-realization. Self-realization, isn't that how we often think of church in terms of the self? I've been going to church, working at church, being a part of church for a very long time now. In my experience, we tend to frame and understand and process church as a deeply personal experience. And I have absolutely been guilty of this too. We think of church according to our preferences, what we are or aren't getting, our felt needs, whether or not we are being properly valued or utilized, how we feel about things, and whether or not we agree with what's being said, what was done for or to us. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you don't matter in the people economy of the church. You absolutely do. But what I am saying is that if all of us focus first and foremost on ourselves, no one is focusing on anyone else. And this is how Paul expects church gatherings to be carried out with focus on the other. Look at this from 1 Corinthians. What shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Look at this assumption. Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, or a revelation, or a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church, the group, may be built up. And the weird thing about this passage from 1 Corinthians is that there was, in that particular church, so much being contributed to the church gatherings in Corinth that it had become a disorganized mess. And Paul was saying, look, yes, you show up to church ready to contribute, but everything has to be done with the express purpose of building up other people. It's all for the group, for the family. But we have been conditioned by a self-realizing culture to receive our church experiences as consumers, like Starbucks or Amazon Prime. It's about what we want, what we need, what we prefer. Not pleased? Bad Yelp review. 
for the church, which is satanic. And I've heard from innumerable people over the years frustrated with their churches over what was or wasn't being done to or for them. And of course, it's a church, it's made up of people, of course there are going to be mistakes made, but I wonder how often anyone gets bent out of shape about whether or not we are doing enough for other people in the church. I was talking to Cam about this last week, and both of us observed that in the dozens and dozens of meetings and cups of coffee that we've had with other Christians over the years in our church and other churches, we've heard lots and lots of something that sounded like this. My last church did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. My last pastor failed me in this way and this way and this way. My small group was bad for this reason and this reason and this reason. And please hear me. I'm not saying that those things are never true. Obviously, they can be. Churches get it wrong. Pastors fail. Communities hurt each other. It's important that we acknowledge this and work through it toward repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Yes, absolutely. But we, as people, tend to also project our own failings onto other people or groups or systems. And it occurred to me and Cam as we were talking that in the hundreds of conversations around bad church experiences between us with other people, neither of us could recall a single instance of anyone saying, I failed my church. I failed my community. I was immature. I was flaky. I wasn't faithful. I didn't contribute anything. I really messed up. And it certainly wasn't because that never happens. Because we tend to think of church as for us rather than a family in which the contributions for everyone are crucial and necessary for the health of the whole. This is why we at Van City personally choose to call this thing that we're doing right now a gathering rather than a service. We are not providing a service for you to consume. We are gathering together as a family. How often do you actually stop to think before you flake out on your Van City community or before you skip the Sunday gathering that you have something to contribute to the church and by failing to faithfully show up, you are withholding that which you are meant to give to others? And maybe you think, oh, probably not me because I'm not charismatic, I'm not a leader, I'm not a Bible scholar or a theologian or a pastor, I'm not outgoing, I'm not prophetic, nothing will be missing from my not being there. Well, you honestly, you need to hear that I cannot begin to count how often I have seen radically impacting moments in the lives of disciples of Jesus initiated, inspired, and carried out by simple unassuming, quiet men and women who were willing to show up and go out on a shaky limb, barely knowing what the heck they were doing. Some of the most spot-on, prophetic, life-changing messages I have ever witnessed came from newcomers to listening prayer. They came from people who did not think of themselves as bold or as charismatic or as leaders in the church, the kind of things that were prefaced by saying things like, look, I'm new to this, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think maybe... Or forget impressive feats of prophecy and just look at just being here at all. Do you know how many people I've had tell me things like, man, I was tired and discouraged and distracted, and then I saw Lexi during worship and my heart was suddenly lifted. 
She was just where she was sitting, singing songs. Tab told me today that he's been inspired while he's leading worship on stage by Alexi just singing in a pew a few feet away from him. Or people have told me, I didn't feel like being part of things. I kind of wanted to bail. But then I, you know, I saw Kevin and Tiffany. I thought of the way that they just continue to show up and they help with kids and they're just here with their girls. Just being here is a contribution to the family of God. But if you're not here, if you don't put on enough love to think outside of yourself to the person who might end up sitting beside you or behind you, the person you might pass on your way in or out, then it doesn't happen. I have seen so many timid, stumbling Christians find one another in community and walk hand in hand to maturity together. That's what this is about, taking off the old way of life, putting on the new. It's not about naked effort or brazen willpower. It's about coming together to help one another figure this thing out in the gracious accountability of love, learning the better way together, everyone pitching in. Why do people like me seek out therapists and spiritual directors? Why do, or what do you think lends something like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, its lasting power? Why have recovery groups like 423 played such a healing role in the lives of people struggling with sex addiction? Or why do people join CrossFit or Weight Watchers or book clubs? Do they do these things for all the wonderful benefits of naked willpower and being all by yourself? Or is it because at a deep biological soul level, we are made for connection and community and accountability, and that the most important aspects of our healing and formation and health always and only happen here in community with other brothers and sisters. The world can be a lovely place, but I don't have to tell you, it also can be pretty horrible. The still-in-progress nightmare devolution that began in 2020 put humanity in a real Lord of the Flies situation, one in which, confronted with viral loads and injustice and police brutality and political idolatry, the world seemed to slowly succumb to all-out chaos. And I remember seeing, whether I wanted to or not, nonstop footage of fire and riots and shootings and outrage and violence and death and hysteria, and I remember wondering what kind of world we want to live in. One scholar I read this week summarized this entire text with a simple thought experiment. He said, imagine two villages. One is governed by the world's guiding principle to self-realize, find your own truth, resolve evil with chaos. Everyone do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And then imagine a second village led by the values that Paul described in this passage. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love, gracious, merciful accountability, and then just ask yourself, which would you prefer to live in? In which village would you prefer to live? Once you've answered that question honestly, you have to wonder, why will such a thing ever happen passively? Or because you showed up to participate in it, coming to fruition in yourself and in your brothers and sisters. So, my humble advice, my pastoral request to the church that I love, show up, begin your contribution there. Deliberately frame church in your heart and mind, whether it's Sunday evening or your Van City community, as a family in want of your contribution, your presence. Be here, be at your Van City community as one who has come to give to the family. Worship 
as one who has come to give to the family. Come through the door, say hi, shake hands, whatever, as one giving to the family. Not to impress or for approval or for recognition, but in the humble knowledge that we need each other. Other people need you, whether you think so or not. You need the imperfect men and women around you, and they need you. Enter into prayer in the pews and around dinner tables throughout the week, knowing that what God has to say to someone nearby, He might intend to say through you. That if you don't bother asking or listening, it might not get said. Not to burden ourselves with pressure or guilt or, oh my gosh, am I missing every moment? Thank God, God is gracious with us in that respect. But to embrace the wild adventure of discipleship as partnership with God and with one another. Not a passive experience, but a journey together, arm in arm, hand in hand. And if you don't show up, it will be worse for you not being here. And that is much better than doing it all alone. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.